Are you an artist longing to show your work in more prolific galleries and exhibitions? Do you want to make more money from making art? We've all heard it said that success isn't about what you know, but who you know. And it's true that creative talent will get you noticed, but it's your connections that will elevate and sustain your career. But what if you're not sure how to make these connections or how to build on them? What if the very thought of networking makes you shudder? I get it. You're not alone. Pretty much every artist I've ever worked with finds this challenging. So I'm on a mission to demystify the art world and help artists conquer their fears, broaden their network and thrive financially doing what they were born to do. I know there are people out there that will love your work, enjoy talking to you about it and even open doors for you. I also know that it only takes five simple steps to build fruitful professional relationships. How do I know? Because I've taught hundreds of clients these steps and they've seen amazing results. Now it's your turn. I've created a brand new course that will teach you the five steps to making critical connections and open the door to extraordinary opportunities. Unlock Your Art World Network is a short, affordable, self-paced online course that breaks down each step with quick video lessons with me as your trusted guide, accompanied by easy-to-follow, beautifully designed, downloadable worksheets, so that with just a couple of hours each week, you'll dramatically heighten your chances of meeting key players in the art world and building mutually rewarding relationships you get lifetime access for the equivalent of just over a fiver a month. Taking control of who you introduce your work to is fundamental to a successful, sustainable creative career. So what are you waiting for? Go to kerryhan.com to buy Unlock Your Art World Network and take your art career to the next level. Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. This week, I'm thrilled to have Lucy McRae on the podcast. Recognised by Fast Company as a leading designer shaping the future, Lucy's renowned for her groundbreaking work spanning film, art, architecture, design and technology. Her focus on scientific breakthroughs in health and the human body delves into the cultural and ethical impacts of emerging technologies. In addition to her gallery and museum projects, Lucy collaborates with a stellar lineup of clients from MIT, NASA, Adidas, to the musician Robin, Unilever, Adobe, Wired Health and Nike, to name but a few. She serves as a senior consultant at Philips, contributing to the development of wearable technology in the Far Future Design Research Division. She's a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, TED Fellow, and a world-building and futurist consultant for Hollywood Productions. Lucy's got such an inspiring approach to utilising her creativity. I hope you get as much from this episode as I did. So welcome to the podcast, Lucy McRae. What an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Kerry. It's I'm delighted to be here, truly. Oh, so tell us, where are you at the moment? I'm in Los Angeles in um, a place called Angelino Heights, which is situated within Echo Park, the east side of LA. Hey, and how long have you lived there for? Six years. 
Ah, okay. So I wonder for our audience, Lucy, could you tell us a little bit about what you do, your work and where you work? Maybe paint us a picture of where you produce your work. Mm-hmm. Well, I am a science fiction artist and body architect. I make sculpture and film and um, edible technology. I work in artificial intelligence and from as long as I know, I've used my body as a as a prototyping tool that looks at possible future scenarios. And together with my team, I lead a interdisciplinary art research practice that's investigating how emerging technologies is changing human evolution. And in in perhaps more simpler terms, I'm trying to bring science to street level through conceptual fashion, short film, sculpture, um, and to make the impossible questions that I ask somehow tangible and familiar. Mm, amazing. And how big is your studio and where is it? My, we're in my studio now. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, it's various rooms. It's very bright and light. And um, the way that we work is quite project specific. And so when we're working on a film, that team grows as the film progresses. Generally, it starts very solitary with me either making scale models or in my bathroom creating some kind of prototype on my body. And that documentation is used to communicate those ideas with commissioners or clients. Um, And right now I have a a wonderful studio manager, Sarah Clausen. So together we are anticipating how we need to grow. And I, as as interdisciplinary as we are, what I've come to learn is that my biggest project is the studio and how we develop that and grow the studio. Mm, I'm going to put a pin in that and come back to it. Uh, it's very exciting. Yeah. So I wonder, before we come into that, could you paint us a picture of where did your creative journey begin? Where did you grow up? And what kind of experiences do you think shaped you? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, um, I'm curious about this concept of situatedness and where you live naturally filters through to who you are and the way that you work. And I was born in London. Um, My mum was from Wolverhampton, or is from Wolverhampton. My dad is from Surrey. I was born in Wolverhampton, Lucy. There we go. (laughs) Um, And then when I was three, my sister was two, we migrated to Melbourne, Australia. And then as a kid, I was dancing classical ballet And um, my mum was an art PE drummer and textiles teacher. Mm. So she would would be in the textiles room in her PE skirt. And my dad was um, head of mathematics at a school. So quite different spectrums of education. And somehow I slot and, and sort of skate across that path. So interesting. And so you were dancing classical ballet and the I'm thinking about how you use the body in your work currently. You think your experience of that at that time um, has informed what you make now? 
I think ballet where I was going was very strict and very disciplined. We were dancing four days a week. And when I wasn't dancing, I was running 100-meter hurdles. I was kind of grand jetting over the hurdles. Wow. So I think that that hurdles was about speed and precision. Ballet was about grace and beauty and synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And the way that I learned to move my body in ballet, you would see it in a mirror. And so you would learn how to form another shape of somebody else. And so I think that in the earlier days of my work, working with Bart Hess, I knew what shape I could pull and without seeing it in a mirror, I kind of knew sort of embedded through a memory what that looked like. Mm. So I think that um, body has has been with me since, since I was a kid and also growing up as a kid, I would transform stuff, materials, and so for a very long time, I would make dried flower arrangements and I would dry hydrangeas or lavender from their alive state to a kind of dead state and then, and then turn them into um, like something that you could hang on the wall. Mm-hmm. And then I moved into transforming like textiles. So I'd be going to a party and I'd say to mum, I want to make an outfit for the party. And so... Together, we would kind of create something um, that didn't exist before. And I think that for me, it was, it wasn't intentional, but it was this sort of curiosity of can I turn something into something else that didn't exist before? Mm, thinking about your the way you transform your body from one shape to the other um, in ballet and the kinds of moves that you can pull off that most humans would never (laughs) in their lifetimes experience. There's something about you feeling your way through space Mm. as well as creating space with your body and that transformative experience you said. So whether it's through costume or Mm. through becoming a character or uh, taking on a part, as it were, I'm wondering what elements of that feed into what you do today. I think what I also was doing was, and and thank you for saying about ballet and performance, but I actually, within the group that I was in, I wasn't flexible enough. I wasn't, I wasn't the right body. I didn't have the um, balletic skills that I could continue and become a dancer. And I, I knew that, you know, pretty upfront, but I tried to be chosen and I tried to be flexible. And essentially what I was doing was trying to fit in to where I was. Mm. And so by that, I guess in a way I had to transform myself or my attitude or my sense of belonging. And at school, I also did that as well because my extracurricular activities were was my social life. My friends at school were going to the movies and seeing each other after school and I couldn't do that because I was dancing and and doing athletics. So on a Monday I would go back and I would have to work to become part of that social group again, which was maybe it wasn't what was happening for everybody else, but it was certainly this sense of alienation. Mm -hmm. And so I think what 
I've been doing is through transformation or through creating space, whether it's one-to-one body space or a film set space or my home, I'm transforming it so that I feel like I belong in these in these worlds. Yeah. So with your studio, you've created a tribe that is where you know the rules and you set the psychological safety for yourself and you where it are conditions that you can thrive in, but also mm-hmm. you're picking and choosing the people that work with you that are in alignment with you and how you work, which is yeah, yeah. Re- really interesting. How do you think that being on the edges of things as a kid, how do you think that makes you think about your relationship to space and the body now? I think what's, I'm just looking out to the vista and I'm seeing mountains and then sort of pockets of skyscrapers and then sort of suburbia all layered up. And I, because of that, it's a big word, alienation, but because of that sense of, let's say, outsider, um, I learned to exist as sort of being on that edge and um, having teachers who are both parents, you're taught to do your homework, to be an example. And my mum taught at my school and my dad taught at our, like the other school. So already that put me again as like a a different position than my um, peer group. And so that sense of sort of being an outsider became a natural habitat for me. And so if I think about living in LA and, you know, I'm, I'm not American and in Australia, I wasn't Australian, I was British. And so that sort of fitting in as in my own weird ways has just become what I do. I don't think that answers your question, but yeah, it, was no, it, it was great. I'm also thinking about the incredible discipline that was instilled in you as a kid your work really sings of that discipline actually but also we can touch on kind of what you make and how you make it but there is a real beautiful editing process that seems clear Mm. in the work it's as much about what you leave out as what you leave in Mm. so that discipline seems to relate in that way yeah and I think what what I've often said is that um, I use the camera as a microscope to the the film camera or the or the um, still camera to determine is this working or what needs to be changed and so I think that documentation um, and I'm I'm looking at something that I have a costume in front of me which is really the way that I have started a lot of the projects um, that I've done you know in in sort of the last three years is really starting on my own body. And can I transform a towel or um, something existing? I think it's really important that what I'm I'm using are very obvious materials. Early days when I lived in Amsterdam, I was, you know, transforming Tupperware into scientific Petri dishes. Um, And now recently I've been looking at camping materials or construction materials like carpet underlay and tarpaulin and can they be used as upholstery materials in a in a machine that was meant for a world where we have been grown in a laboratory and not through 
the female womb. And that's a very big leap from where we're going. But I think the kind of scientific complexities that I'm trying to understand through my work are made more tangible when somebody can relate to a material. Oh, I've, that's a raincoat material if we're talking about something really complex. Mm, so you're taking something familiar before it goes through a process and becoming uncanny or unfamiliar so that people can have an emotional relationship or an emotional response to it through the materiality. Yeah. Yeah, there's somehow a nostalgia there, but it's also a scaffold for them to put their own meaning on it. Wonder, could you walk us through a recent project from the concept to the realisation so that we can understand that process a little bit more? And yes. kind of the kind of materials and the how you might go through the process yeah the the latest film that um, we've made is called delicate spells of mind and I had wanted to make a performance film with a LA-based choreographer Jasmine Albuquerque and I was approached by um, a Singapore-based theatre director um, and she, alongside of the Singapore International Festival for the Arts, commissioned a performance film. And originally, um, Natalie wanted me to deliver dialogue to camera, which I'm really good at getting out of my comfort zone. But that was just, um, you know, in that game, Doctor Doctor, where you hit the edge and you like drop the it buzzes. It buzzes. Operation. Yeah. yeah. Operation. That's it. Yeah. Um, it buzzed and I was like, okay, can I, and it was around the anatomy of ritual. And so my interpretation was finding an answer to dialogue through movement and performance. And so I collaborated with Jasmine and um, I think I, I also teach at SciArc. It's an architecture school here in downtown. And when I'm teaching film and prop making, we're on one side of the the process is we're just making materials with no narrative. It's just pure plain experimentation and then running in tandem, but without consciousness, let's say we're looking at, you know, a narrative or a research area or a technology or a science. And so with delicate spells of mind, I had this idea of performance and movement and also the building as a body, the site where we would shoot the film. And then on the other side, and this was the first time that I wasn't looking at science as the premise, I was looking more at the self. And so I was curious, even though I knew it was impossible, could we um, design a way where we... <laughs> don't suffer pain, we don't make mistakes, we don't fail, and could that um, method be some kind of gadget? And so in the film you see me lugging this very large, almost looks like a mobile camping pop-up device, and then when you see it revealed there's all these knobs, it's like a very old-school editing board. And so the idea was I could tweak all these knobs and be able to, you know, duck and swerve and eliminate the things that are deemed kind of um, painful or hard or weak. 
And then, um, and I, I feature in the film and the other seven dancers are um, protagonists that represent other parts of ourselves, whether it's, um, you know, ego or shadow or the parts of ourselves that sometimes I wish I could just go in and pull out the weed and be done with it. The things that I coach that people of- on every day. <laughs> which, yes. Yeah. The, yes, the I'm sure you. Do, I'm sure you do. Yeah. Um, yeah, such a remarkable job of that because when you are in the garden of weeds, it can be so debilitating. Hundred percent. Yeah. So I love that. So you were visually manifesting these ideas of the things that where we stand in our own way as human beings. Yeah. You were giving them characters, and they were performing in the film. Yeah. And as you just said that, they were beautiful characters. We had an incredible cast of some of the best dancers in LA and the way that they move because of the choreography is um, so unique and so authentic. And it was during the pandemic and these dancers hadn't danced for years and this was the first project that they were doing together. And so actually on set people were in tears because what we were witnessing was such a um, a beginning moment of what everybody had been missing and that kind of community of bodies moving together. Mm-hmm. And so quite an abstract start is to talk, you know, is to have this narrative about the self and a performance. And so always my inroad is uh, material. And so I go into my inventory that already exists of materials and bath mats and ping pong balls and Velcro and um, would just get some gaffer tape and paste them on my body and take a photo and would look at it and be like, absolutely no way. That's, you know, where could that go? And I think what I was trying to do was create an interface between the body and this gadget that I had made and how could we transfer this machine that would so-called be able to duck through the things that we don't want to experience and could there be an exchange? And so I would just keep developing those every day and look at them through the camera and um, and then eventually I'd get to a point where I feel like, okay, this is something that I feel good about And I was really inspired by um, motion capture, but kind of obsolete motion capture garments. Mm -hmm. So you'll see um, on the garments that it's like Velcro as the the points where the camera would recognise the body. Um, So very, very low tech nod to, you know, technology. Um, And so then that um, was the the premise for how we would continue making that film. And so we would then scale up the team. I had a production designer, a producer, um, a studio producer, and so that the project would just get scaled up depending upon, um, you know, the scale and where we were at at the film. So by the by, when we are on set, it was a two-day shoot. By then you have maybe 25 to 30 people because you're you're often what I love doing because I I keep coming back to architecture. I studied interior design, um, <clears throat> but I guess I like treating space as a body. And so you'll see in the film like sort of the 
the building moving with the body or the body activating the building. And so that became um, a protagonist in its own right. It strikes me in um, what you're saying just now, but also looking at other films and sculptures and wearables that you make, there's that, firstly, there's that retro-futuristic kind of vibe where there's like a tension between the futuristic and the analog or the defunct or the um, the no longer useful redundant mm. technology. I'm wondering what is what does that space of kind of past, present, future offer you? I think it it I think it's my mind is going back to my childhood where, and maybe this is what all kids want, but I wanted different things to what I had. I wanted that branded T-shirt, that pair of Air Max, and I wasn't allowed them. We we had a, um, you know, a different attitude towards material things. And so I would go and create them myself and I would take a, a label from, you know, one T-shirt that I thought was really, really cool and take all those labels out and distribute them over all the other clothes that I had and that was was how I would fit in at school. And so I think it's, you know, Coco Chanel said that fashion is architecture. And so I think that what we wear is, is technology and it is a way of um, activating the future through what we wear. And in a way I was doing that when I was a kid somehow. Mm. And so it is taking what's existing and putting it through a process and turning it into something else that sim- somehow still relates to, and in your point, it's technology, but there is also a desire to push against what's come before, especially in terms of science fiction, um, it, the tropes of science fiction. And so I think that as a kid, I always worked with what I had. I'm going to transform what I have. And I still do that now. I transform what I have. But I am talking about a world, not particularly in, in delicate spells of mind, but in other movies like Futurekin, I'm talking about a future where women or, you know, a community of people have worked out how to bypass the womb and grow human life in a laboratory, in a synthetic womb. That is impossible, absurd scientific thinking. But I talk to those impossibilities through simple materials. And I guess that's just my way of understanding um, and making sense of these questions that that I have and, and the kind of underbelly of culture are looking at. Mm. You spoke about uh, fashion there, which I know is also important to you. And you design a lot of the costumes that you make. Um, Once you've gone through the kind of uh, Blue Peter stage of like creating things out of uh, handmade things around, um, you actually have these incredible costumes and outfits that you create. So how does the specific aesthetic of your work um, influence the creative process of making the work and then also how people receive it? It's, I think it's guided by intuition somehow, just a, a feeling inside of me that um, comes through how I'm making. But what you 
probably have noticed is that there is always, I'm looking at one of the costumes now as a kind of clue, but there is always a buffer between the body and the near environment. And so there always seems to be some kind of cushioning or space between me and what's around me. And that could be sort of looked through a domestic lens of kind of cushions or comfort or squishiness. Um, But I think it's also um, going back to being at school where I always felt a little bit away or distanced from the rest of where everybody was. Um, That's Mm, what I'm, yeah. And when you talk about science fiction, obviously growing up in Australia, I'm curious as to what what were your references? You know, I I loved Logan's Run, for example, when I was growing (laughs) up. And actually some of your uh, your outfits kind of have that kind of vibe to me where there's a it's a near skin kind of body stocking experience. But they're also almost couture where there's they have a uniform like quality yeah. to them don't they yeah. I'm curious what we, what are some of your reference points that you've digested over the years well I didn't probably didn't even know that science fiction existed growing up I um I did not read sci-fi I don't think I was even sort of curious about being an astronaut um but I think what was really instrumental into the entire way that I make work and that I see culture and future was I was invited to Philips, the consumer electronics company, in 2006 to lead a far future design research lab. And we were looking at emotional sensing and could we um, could we sense things like love or what is a shiver as a light textile Um, And so here it was really looking at how emerging technologies would yield new business for a consumer electronics company. And so we were developing a portfolio of wearable tech. We were developing dresses and electronic tattoos. And I came in without any previous experience in engineering or even understanding what pyloric arousal was, which is where the hair's on your skin stand on edge. So it was a steep learning curve. But what I did quickly learn, the director, Clive Van Heerden, was sort of this oracle in looking at weak signals of culture and being able to pinpoint what a weak signal would be and how we could turn that into a provocation. And so... What do you mean by a weak signal? Yeah, so an example was... Um, at the around the millennium uh, in Western culture, we were noticing that people were tattooing their bodies, you know, a lot more. It wasn't a dolphin on the ankle or some kind of, um, you know, symbol that would remind you. It was really like a lot of covering the body with tattoos. And at the same time in the medical industry, we were starting to see people swallowing heart rate sensors or cameras. Um, I don't think we were looking at electronic suppositories then, but what we did was because they were kind of at the edges of culture, um, we would 
on what I I say it's like a lasagna. So we put these sort of signals that were not mainstream and laid them on top of each other and, and made a story or a provocation. And so at that time we we married those sort of areas that we were interested in and created an electronic tattoo. And what was important about that, it was an interdisciplinary group of highly experts in their own fields, whether it was fashion design, product design, um, social research, um, <clears throat> was that we were not creating fictions of science, but we were using patents that were at Phillips and developing provocations from there. And Phillips had invented or, or filed a patent for magnetic balls that were implanted under the skin. And as you moved your hand across the surface of your skin, these balls would rotate and provide an image. And so we were taking those um, <clears throat> pre-existing patterns and, and asking the audience, Philip's audience, do you want this or not? And so I think that is really where I seeded this um, artistic view on technology and telling stories that are believable as a mechanism for understanding where we are headed and if we can, should we? And so for me, the point is not to judge we should or we shouldn't have tattoos that are electronic. It's more do do, do we want to do this <laughs> as more of a, a conversation asking, you know, everybody what are the challenges of working in collaboration in that way? But I mean, my own self was the first challenge of um, I remember very clearly going to Clive and saying, um, I'm a fraud, I shouldn't be here. Um, I don't, I don't even know what this kind of sensing and and really what I was doing, I moved from London to Eindhoven. Um, which is now an epicenter of of design, but this was in 2006, and on Sundays nothing was open. Um, so it was very drastic change from living in East London to to Eindhoven. Um, but the job was just a dream, a dream job. Um, but on the weekends, I would just research all the stuff that we were talking about in the week because I had no idea what what they were talking about. <laughs> But so to give yourself confidence, you were um, digesting as much as possible so that you could get up to speed and feel yeah. a bit more secure in that environment. Yeah. Another thing that I did is I um, I dressed like a male. Hmm. I was recently telling this to somebody. I haven't mentioned it before, but I would wear a baseball cap. I would wear men's deodorant, men's pants, and... And I think what I've learned is that 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 clothing then was able to somehow help with my attitude somehow. So at that point, I felt like I needed masculine energy or I needed to feel um, somehow more confident in myself. And so I would experiment at like, what if I wear uh, men's clothes, which is what I do in, in my studio and in my home, I experiment with things on myself or in my space as a way of testing out, could this work or not? Mm. It's a way of becoming. <laughs> and fitting in. Yeah, I I really understand that. There's something um, in, often when, I, when I'm talking to people about um, 
getting ready for interviews or getting ready for presentations, um, I think how we feel and how we seem to ourselves is the first starting point, isn't it? That actually we can exude and it's not posturing or aping that character mm -hmm. in a sense. It's more like you're saying, channeling something that's already within you but enabling you to almost step to the side so that you can allow yourself to to become what it what you need to be in that moment yeah yeah, yeah. i really love that i think there's something about that the collaborations and projects i'm really curious about how you manage that because there's you have a very strong sensibility and aesthetic and approach and yet you've collaborated with so many people and I'm interested in how you hold on to what's useful and which moments you let go so that you can be porous or, you know, you can exchange and learn and really test the edges of what you're capable of. And I'm mm. wondering, how do you manage your ego in those moments where mm. so that you can put yourself in the way of getting the best out of a, a new collaboration? I think... As I get better at it, um, honesty is really a great starting point for me is to um, say to who I'm collaborating with really authentically, this is how I'm feeling, um, whether it's um, I'm tired or whether it's I'm not feeling this project right now. That feels almost like taboo to say that when I'm collaborating with someone I'm like I'm actually not feeling this right now but what that does is it it gives me access to getting back into the project again because I don't feel like I'm holding something that they don't know mm -hmm. um and that was I'm, I'm thinking of an example that was really um instrumental in being able to completely get back into being present with that project. I'm very, very fortunate to work with incredible, talented people. And so their expertise is, is so different and um, to mine. And so I think that we make space for me to do what I'm good at and for them to do what they're good at. And I think that that... Um, also really helps with collaboration. It's not easy. It's not. Um, but I, I think that also discomfort and um, that darkness helps you grow, even though it's unpleasant. Mm, I think you're talking about giving yourself agency through radical candor and holding that space for yourself to go into an environment where you can say, actually, yeah, this doesn't quite feel right for me. Um, I'm not sure what I'm contributing or what it's feeding me. And actually being prepared to have that difficult conversation yeah. was the thing that moved you through, yeah. through it. In, in At Hyper Island, which is a, a school that started in Stockholm, they call that the stinky fish. Ah. And so if you can talk about the stinky fish, the collaboration just expands so yeah. even though confrontation um, for me is one of the, you know, things that I least like when I do it and, and it's always an experiment, 
um, I think that that allows it to be moved. Yeah, I love the idea of practicing disagreeing with people and learning how that part of negotiation. Um, I think I speak a lot about one of my heroes is uh, a negotiation expert called Kwame Christian, who has um, he's the CEO of um, negotiate uh, American negotiation institution. He has a podcast um, and he talks about how good things lie on this other side of difficult conversations. And I think that's something that um, I really appreciate. It, because creativity is so nuanced mm. and where you start hopefully isn't exactly where you want to end up you want mm. to end up in a place where you didn't quite foresee at the beginning otherwise you're illustrating your ideas which mm. isn't necessarily the place of exploration you know that actually that it's the unknown that you have to be prepared to go into yeah that's fine when you're holding that for yourself but when you're trying to hold for other people who might have big budgets or you know that actually taking them mm -hmm. on that journey of wild adventure can be challenging yeah. at times and so I'm curious as to how you've created those environments where your creativity can thrive but you've also managed to deliver on like big Hollywood budgets or, you know, working for big brands where they need stuff to happen at a certain time. How have you learned how to negotiate that? I think I'm thinking about um, a particular experience where in order to innovate, it takes risk. And if you're going to take risks, everybody in the team needs to be committed to taking risks. And so curating that team from the get-go is so important for you to be able to make those creative leaps. So I think that in the beginning, somehow there's an affinity with the people that I'm working with that also have this belief that risk-taking and vulnerability is a gateway to innovation. Mm -hmm. um, I, because of the things that I had to deal with when I was a kid, I'm very adaptive and I can like, you know, in ballet, I could stand on one leg and it would be really uncomfortable, but I could sort of try and do it as gracefully as possible. So I think that um, holding things in a way that sometimes can be um, uncomfortable, I feel like I've, I've had some practice with. Um, but it's also something that I am trying to do less of now. <laughs> and instead of just being adaptive and holding it, but actually just saying, I actually want to be in this position. Does that, can we try that? <laughs> or, you know, mm. metaphorically speaking. Um, so I don't really know where I'm going with this, but, um, who have you learned the most from Lucy in your collaborations? I think it's the most challenging collaborations. So the ones that are really joyful, the, the, yeah, the collaborations that are challenging, I learn the most about myself. And is there a kind of challenging that makes it hard for you to thrive in? Yes, when my health or body or um, when I'm not in my own body, then it's very difficult to, to do the work. Mm. So you need to be grounded 
and feel that you've got the a safe space to to be yourself in yeah I think yes yeah who have been the biggest champions and opened doors for you oh wow um so many people so many people I recently did a lecture and talked about the importance of mentorship and to have people around you because the interdisciplinary practice is its own intervention, invention, innovation. It, because you're bringing in, for me, seemingly um, disseminate pieces that possibly haven't been um, glued together before. And so there's not really a blueprint or a template. Um, in Australia, we call it bush bashing, where you're kind of, you know, walking through the forest and you're making your own path. I really feel like you are in this particular world, at least for me, making my own path. And so along the way, I have been so fortunate enough to um, have cheerleaders and it really, I think I would need to really sit for a couple of weeks and make a list of everybody. <laughs> I think the opportunity at Phillips was particularly particularly critical in my career to be brought on as a body architect in a consumer electronics company. Um, they took a lot of risk in that because I was an anomaly in the that kind of a world. Um, How did you get to I know think, them? Pardon? How did you get to know them? Okay, <laughs> it's quite a story. I was shortlisted for a television program that Richard Branson was doing. This was before Shark Tank TV existed. And um, his concept was to take a small creative business through nine months from kind of concept to reality. And I had a fashion idea and I had met very briefly a um more of a business-minded person. And so we went to Channel 4 and we were interviewed for this show. And at the time I was getting singing lessons from the musician who sang Colette. You can, no, it was Colette, You Can Ring My Bell. Um, <laughs> I was doing, I was doing um, body weather workshops, which was um, a Dutch dancer, inspired by Buto. And so I they what I didn't realize that it was a reality TV program. And so I was sort of like, oh, I do this, I do this, I do this. And we got the position. And then the next day the business um partner rang me and he's like, I can't do this. This is I've got a, I've just had a kid. My, you know, I can't <laughs> have cameras in my house. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I had a week to find a business partner, which is really not the way that you should find a business partner. Wow. And on the last day, I went to the offices of Herzog and de Muron, the uh, architects, and met with some producers who produced Hussein Shalayan's movie of this capsule that moves through the air. Um, and they had just been in Tokyo at a wearable tech conference where Philips the probes team were there and this man said to me why don't you just call them and he saw he wow. he saw some connection between my work 
and technology on the body. And then I called Clive and I gave him the spiel, which I was giving all the people that week. And um, I went for a meeting. Um, Their offices in London were near the Tate and it was a hilarious meeting and the kind of end result was without, it was a two-hour meeting and I really thought I was absolutely not going to get the job. And when they said we would love to collaborate, I actually slipped off the chair because I (laughs) had completely egged myself out of this happening. And so then I relocated to Eindhoven, helped them set up this department in Eindhoven. Why? And you still work with them today? No, the 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 probes. Philips now is a health tech company. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And I get from that moment of putting yourself in that situation that was uncomfortable, but you kept going and uh, adapting, but then also staying clear to uh, what you thought you could contribute, going deep on the research, assessing what could be possible. And finding a way to contribute has obviously enabled you to 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 keep going, collaborating with all kinds of amazing yeah. people. And what strikes me is the collaborations that you've done, not just with companies, but I'm thinking about your music videos, for example. There's one, um, the Edible Musician, which um, I wouldn't if you say something about, because the lengths that you go to, for <laughs> me, are really quite extraordinary and. What I get a sense of, I don't know if this is true, Lucy, but it's my hunch, is that the process almost is enough somehow, mm-hmm. that that whatever the outcome was, the process was so instructive, informative, fun, bonkers, so much learning took place that it almost didn't matter what the outcome was. That's the feeling that I get, which makes wow. it really compelling to watch. I wonder if you could talk the the listeners through that particular music video that I'm referring to. Yes. So um, I'm going to have to recall the name, but the the band was Architecture in Helsinki and I had moved from Amsterdam back to London and I was doing a residency at the Lime Wharf that Thomas Emacora had set up and I was there because I had met, there's a lot of serendipity in my path and the way that I've um, evolved as a human and as an artist. And I was at a TED um, retreat. I'm a TED fellow and I was at a retreat and I saw a um, TED talk by Alex McDonald, who works at NASA's Emerging Space Portal, and he was talking about the importance of telling stories 100 years into the future and that the reason that we went to space is because of storytelling. And I was sat right down the back. I'd been there for four days. I was exhausted. I was sick of, like, comparing myself to everybody else because I was an artist and all these people were changing the world. But this talk just slapped me across the face in the best way possible. And so this was in Whistler and we were all catching buses back to, you know, go back to our various homes. And Alex happened to be on the bus that I was on and I thought I really just need to go and talk to this guy. And so I kind of, you know, put my hand in the air and, and I was like, can I come and sit next to you? And he sort of rolled his eyes because by this point you don't want to talk to anybody. Um, 
And so to sort of cut the story short, Alex turned around to me. He was he was sort of faced away from me the whole time filming the scenery because it was so exquisite on this bus. And he turned around after me telling him my interests. NASA are concerned with the complications of growing a fetus in zero gravity. And I, within 20 seconds, I said, it was so nice to meet you. Thank you so much. And I just went and sat down. And it was like the, the opposite of an explosion. All of these ideas and this thinking sort of came into one form. Mm. And so I then in London started working with a personal trainer to train to be an astronaut. I went to San Francisco and met a scientist who was sending fish, frogs and mice up into space to understand how would procreation happen off Earth. And so I was in London to do a residency for that work And then Cameron Bird from Architecture in Helsinki contacted me and he's like, do you want to make a music video? And I was like, no, (laughs) I'm making babies in space. (laughs) And and so I think I did say no, which I I tell students saying no is more powerful of a career um, direction than saying yes because it's so much harder to say no, although I am um, experimenting with something different this year Um, and then he came back to me again and I was like do you know what I've been wanting to um, experiment and collaborate with Loop at that time Rachel Wingfield and Matthias Gamarkel in London and so I wrote to them and I said hey um, we've got this opportunity to do a music video they don't know but this could be a way for us to collaborate together and see what it's like to work together do you want to do it awesome and so that whole music video was an experiment in them collaborating with us. And so we had a huge team who were prototyping body parts out of latex and jellies. We were experimenting with exploding colored liquids. Um, we like every kind of um, experiment that didn't require scientific equipment or a, a lab. W- we were doing um, as as the music video. Mm. And so you'll see in this music video, Cameron Bird is this kind of crazy scientist and he's just taking you through these different experiments on the body, which was a nod to citizen science that we are moving to a world where you can get CRISPR genetic engineering kits, send them to your kitchen, and you can experiment with editing, you know, DNA and so the video also speaks to this idea of what happens when an accident happens or serendipity happens within this um, world of building the body from scratch. And I think what we're talking about is when failure happens, actually it explodes into something far bigger than what you could have imagined. Mm. So in the music video where you're you're he's actually dunking kind of miniature versions of himself as a food stuff, isn't it? So it's yeah. a bit like Willy Wonka's factory, but like miniature versions of the museum. I think yeah. we get a glorious insight into your world of possibility. And again, that kind of mashup between like past, present, and future, but with kind of a a slightly more fun. Uh, mm. sense of abandonment mm. in it somehow. And I, I wondered whether the the different remits that you get from these different contexts that you get invited into, 
whether some of them give you more opportunity to be more bonkers and playful and push the edges and whether sometimes the kind of the maybe slightly straighter edges of it give you something different to push back on. I think that sometimes when people come to me, they don't know what else could I do with them. Um, And recently two situations, both parties have said, well, this is very odd. It's never happened before. Well, this is very unique. There's no template for it. And I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) So I'm kind of used to it, um, there being no kind of pre-existing example. But I think that's what people are coming to me for, is for me to connect the dots that haven't been connected before. And so perhaps if people are coming to me with something that it has already been done, I see something else and turn it into well, what about this? And um, depending upon if they have this vision and um, adaptability to go with something that they didn't think that they needed before, which generally happens, then we move into that space. How do you ring fence your sort of project development with companies? Do you have like a a kind of R&D fee that you charge people so that you can... You can allow yourself to do the work without it costing you and the studio a great expense or how do you work and your IP on that front? Mm, work in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, one comment that I just want to add is that the the process of making, um, and we talked about it just when we met mm-hmm. online, that after you've finished a project, in the calendar, you should put in another two weeks as a kind of the antechamber for what came before. And I would love to think that that would go into the budget. <laughs> that's the spa experience for me. Um, but that's immediately what came to mind because um, as a form of prototyping the ideal scenario, I think what we do is itemise budgets um according to what we're delivering um and yeah the r&d phase has now become accumulative because i've learned you know i've been doing this for 20 years that r&d phase or the inventory or the database is a lot bigger and so i'm able to perhaps that muscle of r&d is is really practice now um but it's also hard to calculate and um, there is no one way of doing it, I don't think. Mm. I'm so glad you talked about the antechamber, the decompression zone after a project. So I talked to so many artists and creative professionals from curators to museum directors and I think the the reality of getting a creative project off the ground for a uh, a creative, but also for the people that they're working with, is that there's a kind of velocity, isn't there? There's a an energy that, and a momentum and a traction that everyone gets going. And that takes a certain kind of vibe and adrenaline 
and uh, the energy that is required to keep it working and operating and all the kind of wheels oiled to keep going. And when it comes to a close, there is a kind of, um, I think I have a, a mild form of epilepsy, which is called petit mal, mm. which is like a tiny death. It's like a tiny death. And it reminds me of that moment where, you know, sort of afterwards where actually everyone is exhausted and wiped out because they're their brains have been firing on all cylinders the kind of the incredible electricity and chemistry that happens from keeping a creative project alive and yet within our institutions our organizations within our studios within our home office we very rarely give ourselves that time to really recuperate. And I work with so many people who suffer from exhaustion or burnout or depression at the end of a project and yeah. that feel that loss and that kind of, I guess it's the equivalent of an actor coming off stage, yeah. you know, and um, I always remember for years, uh, Dawn French talking about Lenny Henry and the kind of the the buzz that he would feel when he came off stage. He just wanted to go mental and go out, you know, on the piss and go wild. And, you know, that in itself isn't replenishing. It's just the energy needs to be, you know, it needs an outlet to kind of to. Yeah. So I think that's a really amazing way to think about your studio, that actually in order to have great ideas and to be the person who brings difference to the table, you need to feed yourself at the end of a project as well as at the beginning and all the way through it. So yeah. I love that factoring it in somehow so that you can keep going. Yeah, I think because of um, the time that I've been doing it and the repetition of the aftermath of a project and what that feels like. And and I, I often... Um, say to people that when I meet artists, whether they're friends or new people, and I hope this doesn't sound ignorant, but I prefer talking about how they run their studio than actually what they make because that almost feels like, well, how do you do it and how do you do it? And and I get excited about how people um, create the platform for them to continue doing what they are doing. Um and right now in the studio, we are looking at the antithesis to work grind culture mm -hmm. and that there is very compelling research that a four-day work week is as productive um, as five days. And um, there is a brilliant book, Rest is Resistance, by the author who also set up the NAP ministry or industry. And, um, you know, I feel like there is a real uprising of, of how we work and when we do it. And so that is something that we are looking at in the studio because a previous point that we've touched upon, I'm doing my best work when I feel so good in myself. Mm. And that is when, you know, you're going to get the best of me. And I think everybody can relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are more entrepreneurs I'm aware of um, and certainly I've been speaking to more often that 100% buy into the four-day work week. And I think um, for cultural organisations working with artists, I think there is a real 
need to recognise that creativity doesn't work in quite the same way as office administration and mm. that actually finding that time and space to work in a slightly different pace, um, less is more, really, mm. I think, is is kind of what we're all in agreement with. And yet there is that call for productivity. And I think I'm yeah. aware of the guilt that creatives feel when they take their foot off the gas. Yes. You know, and that's partly through having to justify being an artist for so, you know, for so long, because it is about being slightly outside of the tribe and understanding that actually in order to be a pioneer, you don't work in the same way in order no. to help people be pioneering. You can't work in the same way. Yeah. So I really loved that thought that you're actually talking it to the studio and considering ways that you might work that kind of restores your creativity yeah. I know that I'm mindful of your time so I'm thinking about what you're currently obsessed with Lucy what are you focusing on at the moment I think ways of resting and being productive are uh, the conversation that we've just had is something that um, I am and we're thinking about in the studio um, in 2022, I set up Future Sensitive, which is a, a, a place of incubation. It's in kind of its embryonic phase as to what formally that means. Um, but I, I think with the attitude of the interdisciplinary practice as a studio being your biggest project, I'm looking at Future Sensitive as a kind of prototype um, and so if we are looking at the antithesis of work growing culture, can we prototype that within future sensitive? Um, can we do all the things that we want to do, which is like R&D, narrative prototyping, making film, conceptual fashion, architecture, creating space, art? Um, I want to do all of those things, but I am only one person. Mm. And so I think that, um, yeah, Future Sensitive is a, is this platform for belonging and experimentation, and that is where I'm putting my, my energy at the moment. Um, I do live in L.A. and I'm close to Hollywood, so I have been working on um, much bigger stories with some of the best and award-winning producers and showrunners. So that's really exciting to see the art that I've been making converging with that kind of scale of story. Um, I'm also reading a lot of crime books. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. What's your, what's your, what tickles your fancy? Um, I've read a great one by Barbara King Glover. I forget the the um, name of that and at the moment I'm reading Tremor by Teju Cole wow. which is a really excellent it's not crime um, but it's an excellent fiction through the lens of a West African protagonist Tundi um, and I really love moving my house around so I've always done it um and that it also is a signal to me that I'm at the beginning of a new project because generally what I do is sort of move stuff around and start experimenting with space and that means that something is brewing 
and what's coming in next is kind of subtly being experimented with within my own personal space. Interesting. As you're talking, for those listening rather than watching this, um, behind Lucy, there is, is it a Monstera or is it a, yeah, yeah, a Monstera and some plants. There's a lot of greenery and there's a mirror. So you're giving me the impression that you create little mini tableaus in your house. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And I think just a point that um, we talked about before about body ready for a project the way that I work is almost um, my body is a, a barometer or a kind of um, when I take something on, it kind of goes through me in a way. Mm-hmm. And so tuning that with where I live is a really great, um, if we're looking at a timeline of a project, before a project comes in, it's almost like that's happening as part of the timeline. Yeah, I often talk to creatives about being like a tuning fork. Yeah. You know, and having to have the right resonance. And if something's slightly off, then it, mm. it doesn't keep kind of moving. And I think what you're talking about is getting to the right frequency. Yeah. Before things can come through you in yeah. order to make some more great work. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Beautifully put. That's very exciting. Well, I, for one, can't wait to see what comes next. But for those who would like to learn more about you, Lucy, where could they find out more about you and your work? Uh, I have an Instagram, which is my name, Lucy McRae, a website, lucymcrae.net. And for those who want to subscribe to our occasional but, you know, sort of highly curated newsletter, you can also do that on Instagram. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for providing such brilliant insights to your work today, Lucy. What a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kerry. I admire Lucy for recognising that her early experiences as an outsider have gifted her a valuable skill set, adaptability and the ability to connect with others in diverse contexts. Her involvement in ballet, interior design and fashion has not only broadened her perspectives, but also empowered her to experiment with various scenarios. She utilises clothing as a tool to feel her way into new situations. What stands out to me is Lucy's commitment to radical candour in her collaborations. She bravely voices when something doesn't align with her intuition, taking risks to express her honest opinions. Her research methodology is intriguing and brilliant, beginning with a foundation in her own body, self-awareness and the materials at her disposal. Lucy understands that envisioning the future involves building upon the familiar before daring to take a leap into the unknown. Let's celebrate the notion of embracing discomfort as we follow her example, recognising that true growth often emerges from navigating the uncomfortable. Here's to crafting futures that challenge the status quo. Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time.